0: The number of undocumented immigrant children in U.S. government custody has reached unprecedented levels, and the Trump administration continues to crack down on immigrant families seeking asylum. Meanwhile, the Departments of Homeland Security and Health and Human Services have released a proposal to establish new regulations on the care of non-citizen children. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Ryan Matlow a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford University. Dr. Matlow has co-authored a perspective article about provisions in the new proposal that could harm children and families. Dr. Matlow, you write in your article that the existing standards of care for non-citizen children were established by the 1997 Flores Settlement Agreement. Can you tell us a bit about those standards and why they were put in place in the first place?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the Flores Settlement Agreement was it was established based on a, lawsuit, a class action lawsuit regarding concerns about how kids that were held in detention were being treated in some specific cases of violations in terms of the care of children. The settlement agreement, as you mentioned, established the standards of care for kids that are in the custody of the federal government after they've entered the United States. It provides conditions around the release of children within a reasonable time frame and some guidelines around the recommended placement options. So kids should only be held ideally under the Florida settlement for three to five days in detention in secure facilities, and after that they should be moved to a non-secure facility. There are some stipulations that allow some exceptions for extensions up to 20 days and beyond, but really that's the maximum amount of time that children should be held in a detention setting based on the Florida settlement. The Florida settlement agreement also provided recommendation stipulations around housing children in the least restrictive setting as possible and set some specific standards of care for conditions of detention and access to services, including educational services, health and mental health services, and and ratios of staffing and care within these settings. And so this really laid the groundwork and the framework for how kids should be cared for while they're in custody of the U.S. government.
0: So is there evidence that those standards over the years have adequately protected children and families who are in government custody?
1: There's actually been a number of concerning violations of the Florida settlement in specific cases where the standards of care were not being met and where kids have not received proper medical care, for example, resulting in injury and illness, where there have been experiences of abuse and victimization within the settings where children have been placed. And so there have been numerous instances where the settlement agreement has not been upheld in its 20-year history. And so that's part of our concern is the history of inability to comply with the Flores Settlement, along with some of the additional regulations or proposed regulations to reduce the oversight and monitoring of these conditions of care under the Flores Settlement.
0: So, you've mentioned one, but what are the primary changes that the new proposal would make to the standards that have existed since Flores?
1: So, the current Trump administration has proposed new regulations that would replace the Flores Agreement. Establishing the Flores Settlement stipulations as regulation is not bad in itself, In many ways, the proposed regulations copy the language of the Florida settlement, but there are a couple of very important stipulations or changes that have major implications. One is the one modification in the proposed regulation would allow for indefinite detention of children and families. So the guidelines I mentioned around three to five days stay in apprehension or 20 days or a little bit beyond if reasonable efforts are made in certain exceptional circumstances, those are proposed to be replaced by allowing indefinite detention. And so we're quite concerned about the potential impact of long-term or indefinite detention. So that's one primary modification or change that's being proposed. And the other is elimination of state licensing requirements for child care facilities where kids are being held. And that gets back to the point I was just making about the oversight and monitoring of the FLORES regulations. And so if we eliminate the state licensing requirements where kids are held, then there's just less oversight and less ability to ensure the safety and well-being of children who are in government care.
0: In your article, you suggest several alternatives to these proposed regulations, including that DHS and HHS adhere to guidelines for key principles of a trauma-informed approach in behavioral health in order to minimize the risks for non-citizen children and families. So what would that kind of approach look like?
1: There's been a lot of work that has been done by other government administrations. The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, has provided recommendations and guidelines for, as you mentioned, principles and key primary standards for trauma-informed care. And so this is an important perspective for us to be working from because the children that are entering the United States have, inherent, in many cases, have experienced trauma either during migration, prior to migration, and even the act of detention and experiences such as family separation are are traumatic in themselves, right? So it's important that we're operating from a framework of trauma-informed care in this work. And so some of the guidelines that have been recommended by SAMHSA, for example, focus on sense of providing empowerment and control over one's situation, ensuring safety and stability, cultural sensitivity and responsiveness. So it gets down to specific practices of what a trauma-informed system would include. And so really, the proposed regulations that have been advanced really don't comply, aren't in line with the recommendations that have been advanced by other government agencies. And so it's a helpful framework for us to be working from and would recommend that our systems of care around addressing the crisis around migration and immigration at the border really are based in these trauma-informed principles. We do not see the proposed regulations as meeting that standard or really operating from that framework.
0: Beyond the trauma-informed approach, are there other evidence-based strategies that the government could use to manage services for families seeking asylum?
1: Absolutely. So there have been studies that have found that other sources of support, providing support, case management services, legal representation, have been found to be extremely effective at rates upwards of 97 to 99% compliance with immigration hearings, attendance at appointments, and ongoing monitoring with Immigration and Customs Enforcement. When these sorts of services, when legal representation is provided, when, when families and kids receive case management support and healthcare services... The rates of compliance are, again, as I mentioned, upwards of 97%. So we have strong evidence that these sources of services can lead to the positive outcomes that DHS and ICE and and government organizations are looking for. Some of the concerns and the rationale for detention is in order to maintain compliance with the immigration hearings as, as kids and families are in the process of going through asylum proceedings or immigration hearings. And we found that there are much less costly and less damaging approaches for ensuring compliance with these processes than detention.
0: Finally, what advice would you give to physicians who treat non-citizen patients? How can they improve the care they provide to those patients? And how can they get involved in advocating for their health and well-being?
1: So again, thinking about the principles of trauma-informed care is an important framework, taking into context the potential experiences that and adversities that children have had, given where they're coming from, the context of adversity and poverty and trauma exposure they've experienced in their home countries and home communities. And so it's important to take that into account. Integrating with that all the wealth of knowledge that we have at this point around how exposure to trauma and and adversity impacts children. So there's a wealth of documented evidence around the outcomes, both mental health outcomes physical health outcomes, medical outcomes, and also academic and performance outcomes that are impacted by trauma exposure and adversity. And so if we can understand and capture these sorts of outcomes in our individual interactions with kids and understand that they are coming from exposure to trauma and adversity, then it provides us with a different operating framework and a different way of addressing the needs, again, whether it's a psychological or mental health need or a physical or medical need. So engaging in trauma-focused assessment to understand the adversities and traumas that kids have experienced, using that to inform our interventions are primary recommendations for this work. We also think about ways we know that kids that have experienced trauma are commonly at risk for having skill deficits when it comes to emotion expression and emotion regulation. So thinking about ways that we can build these skills helps kids and families become more empowered in dealing with the traumas they've experienced and eventually leading to better outcomes in the long run. Thank you, Dr. Matlow.